Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Um, welcome to today's Merrick's Lunch Talk. We will discuss a very timely topic that has been making headlines for months, the situation in Hong Kong, former British crown colony, now Chinese special administrative zone, and still a vibrant economic and financial hub that is of crucial importance for China, but also for international actors doing business in the region. Um, we will focus our discussion today um, on how current developments affect Hong Kong's economy and its role as a China's gateway to international finance. Um, we will also look at the impact this has on foreign companies. And um, I'm very proud to say that uh, Charles Mock joined us today and also very warm welcome to Alicia Garcia Herrero, um, who came in from Hong Kong today, if I'm correctly informed, to join us here. Um, thanks both to, to both of you for coming. Um, we thought that uh, since Charles uh, is a member of the LegCo, is really into the uh, subject matter that we would ask him to give us a brief introduction into the situation on the ground. And afterwards, we will all discuss it here, the four of us, uh, Frank Pieke, our director, and Max Sengland will also be part of our panel. They, both of them just came back from Hong Kong where they did research on the situation. Um, let me briefly say a, word, uh, a few words about Charles. He's a legislative counselor representing the information technology functional constituency. Um, I think he has to explain himself what that is. Um, <laughs> he has been serving in the ICT industry for 30 years and is the founding chairman of the Internet Society of Hong Kong and honorary vice chairman of the Professional Commons, a pro-democracy organization. And he's doing many other things, which I can't explain to you right now. Um, by the way, I am Claudia Wessling. I'm heading the publications uh, department here at Merricks, And I will moderate the discussion afterwards. But now, let's open the floor to Charles. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Claudia. And, uh, well, uh, as you instructed, let me very quickly explain what is a functional constituency, which is actually part of the problems that we have in Hong Kong. Uh, in our legislature, our LegCo legislature, we have 70 seats, but half of the seats, well, half of the seats are elected through geographic constituency, uh, through proportional representation. So that's okay. But the other half are voted by uh, companies, industries, or professionals. Nine of the seats are, well, they belong to people like engineers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, social workers, teachers, IT people, and so on. So actually, the pro-democracy side camp, we actually get seven out of those nine seats which means that we have a pretty good support from the middle class. But on the other hand, the rest of these functional constituencies are actually occupied, are actually voted in by companies. So if it is a representative for the tourist industry or the banking industry, let's say the banking industry, do you think a bank teller or bank manager would have a vote? No, only one bank, one vote. So you could imagine that uh, you know these seats, more than 20, one, about one third of our legislature, is actually almost automatically uh, elected, no opposition, 
and they would be dominated by Beijing, which means that uh, since the handover, or even before the handover, despite the fact that just like the election on Sunday, the pro-democracy camp would normally get 60% of the vote, give or take a little bit. We would only end up with just about one-third of the seats inside of LegCo. So for 20 years, this is the situation. And our young people, our population in general, even the older people who used to be young people 20 years ago, were saying, what's going on? You know, which brings me to, uh, during this particular movement, one of the, th one of the most impressive pictures that I saw was on, Gen on July 1st, when the protesters actually broke in, in into our legislature building. You know, fortunately, they didn't go upstairs, didn't get to my office, but uh, they caused a lot of damages, property damages to the uh, meeting rooms, council rooms, uh, computer facilities, and so on. And they scribbled a lot of things on the wall. Uh, unlike the German Bundestag, I was told, you know, you left many of those scribblings on the wall, but uh, we erased them already. <laughs> But uh, one of the pictures that was, I think, very impressive to me was that someone wrote uh, in Chinese, you taught me peaceful demonstration is useless. For 20 years, Hong Kong is a city of demonstrations. Uh, almost every Sunday or every weekend, big or small, we have big uh, annual marches on July 1st and so on, on June 4th. But for the 20 years, people march, and then they go home. <laughs> and then the government said, your voice is heard, we will see what we can do, and nothing is done. So a lot of people are saying what hap what's happening with this particular movement. Of course, the immediate cause was the extradition bill that was introduced in early this year. And I'm not going to talk about that too much because I think some of you, many of you may know the details, and also because of the fact that the, the bill is dead anyway. So people would say, the bill is dead, so what are you fighting for? Uh, people keep saying that five demands, not one less. Five demands, they hold their hand up like this, uh, like Iron Man, <laughs> you know, five demands. Uh, one is to total withdrawal of the bill, which is actually done, the government finally did that, which is easy because there's no way they can push through this bill anymore. Number two was, uh, there was a call because these this five demands were made back in mid to late June, after the June 12 uh, conflict outside of the Lechco building, government headquarters, when the police first fired tear gas and tear gas canisters, plus uh, uh, rubber bullets and so on. So people were very angry at the time about the level of force used by the police. Of course, the level of force used today is so much higher already. But even back then, everybody was surprised. So they were demanding total withdrawal of the bill, number two. They want to, uh, the, because the police at the time branded the incident on June 12 as a riot. And we know that if people are charged with not just illegal assembly, but participating in a riot, the charges is much higher, the sentencing is much higher. So we want to remove that branding as a riot. Number three, uh, they were calling for a clemency 
on those people who were arrested on June 12. And then they were also uh, requesting an independent investigation committee to investigate the whole affair. Finally, we were calling for the chief executive to resign. Those were the five demands, and they were not met with at all. And in fact, after a couple of months, people stopped calling for the chief executive to resign. They substituted, because I think maybe they think that six demands doesn't sound that good. Five is just right. So they don't talk about the chief executive to resign anymore. They added one thing, universal suffrage, which was the, what we have been calling for since before the handover. Okay, If you ask me in 1997, when will Hong Kong have universal suffrage, I think most people would say, well, maybe 10 years, okay? I'll give it 12, okay? But now, 22 years. And it seems like the distance is farther and farther away. Okay, finally, uh, I think, uh, uh, switching on to uh, something else, five demands, but I think, uh, actually, later on, people did add sort of a sixth demand. What is that? Stop the police violence and brutality, and to uh, they, what they say is reorganize or disband the police force. You know, the lack of confidence and the anger amongst the police is that high. There were many of these polls that were showing that 80%, uh, up to 80% of the people think that the police were the biggest problem in the riots. And of course, a lot of people would ask us, especially foreign friends, when they see these images on TV and they see that, you know, truly, some of the protesters were, were also quite violent. Uh, they were throwing Molotov cocktails and so on, which is unheard of in Hong Kong. I mean, maybe in some European cities it happened before, but in Hong Kong it was unheard of, never. And then, uh, not since the communist riots in the 60s, 1960, there were uh, some bombs that were left on the street uh, at that time. But Hong Kong has been a very peaceful city ever since. But I think to most people, they were more captivated by those pictures of young medical uh, first aid provider, the, late, the young woman who got her, her eyes shot at by, uh, and lost one of her eyes. Uh, because of a plastic bullet. There was an Indonesian reporter, young woman as well, who also lost her eye because of the same reason. Uh, you might remember several weeks ago, there was this young man uh, in face mask, certainly, which might have broken the face mask law, <laughs> but uh, he was shot at this close range, like this close, at his stomach by a policeman. And his hands were down, no weapon in his hands at all. So these are the images that most people are captivated. And then also, uh, you know, the tear gassing of Hong Kong. The, the one statistics, Chinese University, uh, in the protest about three or four weeks ago, the police over a period of just less than 24 hours shot over 2,000 canisters of tear gas. And right now, we're, we're, we're working with the people living around the area to try to get the, the government to inspect the air quality and the residual dioxin and all those toxins that are left. So that brings me to the next point about the election on Sunday. We were surprised at the result. Most people were, I think everyone, was really surprised about the result. Uh, the... 
uh, our pro-democracy camp, we won 85% of the seat. Uh, we were the minority before, mainly because we couldn't find enough candidates to run in the elections. But this time, all these young people, 20, 30 year old, never had any political experience. They say, I want to run. And then they won. And uh, uh, 80, we, got, we got 60% of the vote, but we actually ended up with 85 seats because it was small seat, you know, one, one seat, one vote basis. So that was unimaginable. Now, uh, the, the, how do we read into that result? Before the election, to, if you asked me to, a week ago, I say I would be very worried that we would not win enough seats because the traffic disruption, the, the property damage, a lot of people couldn't get to work for almost two weeks. So people are actually very angry. So they must not support us or, in a way, like vote in a referendum to, to uh, support the protesters, support the pro-democracy camp. But the result was totally opposite. It seems like people really hate the government even more. Uh, and they are even more dissatisfied with the police uh, uh, level of force that they use. So uh, it, it, it is a, to us, of course, it is a good result. Uh, and I think it buys us a little bit of time to have a little bit of a truth to really see if the government will respond with something, a dialogue, a true dialogue, a true investigative com uh, invest independent investigation committee. 80, more, again, more than 80% of the people in Hong Kong in opinion polls support that idea, but the government refused to do it because they didn't want to offend the police. Uh, so final point, uh, one update, you know, last night suddenly, Donald Trump signed the uh, uh, Human Rights and Democracy Act. Uh, and uh, a lot of people will be asking me or others, you know, what's the implication and so on. Hong Kong people over the last year turned from doesn't really care about the law, that, that, that particular act, to the fact that they actually the majority of the people in Hong Kong now support the act. Uh, because what they see as number one, uh, support from the international community, at least symbolic. Second, the potential to punish and sanction individuals who might have hurt Hong Kong's human rights in the process. So people are actually writing this list, number one, Carrie Lam, number two, number three, number four, to uh, try to submit to the US government, actually also the UK government, to tell them to sanction these people, freeze their assets if they are assets in the US and so on. Uh, if you ask me, I don't think the US government, particularly the Trump administration, would really do that very quickly. I doubt that. But people have this anticipation that we get the international support uh, that is important. Because imagine that if Hong Kong is Xinjiang, you don't have the TV cameras, you don't have DW, you don't have CNN, you don't have these people running around everywhere and filming everything. What would they do? What would they have done already? So uh, we want to keep that international attention. Uh, and uh, part of the reason why I come here and also meet with different people to talk, and hopefully I, I, I would save more time to answer your questions uh, and hear from other guests. Uh, this whole process is very important for us. Of, and what happens in Hong Kong is not just because we're Hong Kong and we are subjugated by China and so on. 
you, I, I use this example, and I think it's easy to understand, is that NBA, you know, it's not just about you go to China, you follow China rule, China laws. Very well, reasonable, right? But increasingly, China's expectation is even in your home, home countries, you are going to have to follow my law, my, not laws, but follow, follow my opinions. Follow, you know, don't, don't do things that I don't like, even inside your own country, just like the NBA example. So uh, I think that actually wake up a lot of the people, maybe in the US, maybe hopefully also in Europe, because I think there are more examples than just the NBA. So uh, with that, I don't want to take up more time. I really want to skip, keep more time for you to ask some more questions. So thank you very much. Thanks very much for this intriguing account and uh, describing the drama that's going on on the ground. Um, before we dive into the panel, let me take the liberty and briefly introduce the other guests in, uh, with a little more detail. Alicia, sitting next to me, um, lives in Hong Kong. She works for the French bank Natixi, if I uh, spell this correctly, as a chief economist. Um, she's also an adjunct professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and a visiting lecturer at the China Europe International Business School in Shanghai. And Alicia also contributes her knowledge to the European think tanks Bruegel and Real Instituto Elcano in Spain. Um, to my right, Max Zenglein. Um, he's heading the economic research team here at Merix. Um, and uh, Max does not only do research on Hong Kong as a financial hub, he also has a very emotional personal connection to the place. Um, because during his time in China, I guess you spend a lot of time there. Um, and Max used to be an economic analyst for the German Chamber of Commerce in the greater China area. So Hong Kong was always part of his job and his personal life. And he just came back from Hong Kong two weeks ago where he talked to business people, citizens and economists on, on the ground. Last but not least, our institute's director, Frank Pieke, um, Frank works, among others, uh, among many other topics, on the transformation of the Chinese Communist Party um, on migration in China. He just published a great piece that you can see on our website. I just want to mention it as an advertisement here. And also Frank just came back from Hong Kong where he did research on the consequences on the pro of the protests and of China's reaction to them. Um, before I ask you about that, Frank, I would like to briefly turn back to Charles. Um, you mentioned, because you, you, you mentioned what, I, what my first question to you would have been, um, the law that Donald Trump signed into effect last night or, or yesterday. Um, you said you, you see this as a great sign of support for people on the ground. Um, how do you judge the, the effect of this law regarding... Um, ways to find a solution to this ongoing conflict. Um, because China, as we all know, reacted very harshly. They summoned the US ambassador um, and criticized this step. Um, well, yeah, uh, uh, that's a normal, typical Chinese reaction anyway. Uh, when, the sen when the Congress passed the bill, they protested very seriously. And then Senate, and then uh, when the two, when when the, when Congress bypassed the conferencing uh, uh, requirement and basically accepted the Senate version uh, and sent it over to Donald Trump, uh, they also protested. And then, of course, uh, when Donald Trump signed it, they did the same thing. But I'm not underestimating 
whether or not they will take steps to retaliate. They have been threatening to retaliate. Of course, there is still this big backdrop of the U.S.-China trade war. Uh, I'm, I'm not an economist. I don't want to try to pretend I would know who is going to get hurt more. But uh, politically, I think for China, it is a big loss of faith. And they would probably be genuinely worried that there might be other countries that may follow. Uh, so uh, you're right in a sense that in a conventional way to think about the whole matter, you would think that it doesn't bring our, us closer to a uh, solution. But the problem is, I really want to hear a better alternative. That, uh, okay, let's sit down and talk with China. Can they give us what we want? Uh, we've tried to do that for 22 years. And in fact, they talk to us lesser and lesser. 10 years ago, we could probably still go to Beijing and, and you know, talk a little bit, even though we, they, we know maybe they weren't really listening. But now, I think over the last several years, they really shut down all the channels, shut out all the channels. Now, the, 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 if you talk to the young protesters on the ground, whether they are right or wrong, you know, they are not, they are not politicians or they are not political science students. And have, all they know is that if they give us, that's what they, they would tell us. If we give up today, we lost everything. It might be a passion sort of reaction, possibly. But I think it's impossible to back down. So I think, uh, as I said, I would really think that the international attention is useful for us. And there are possibly, you know, like, like more neutral type of international attention, like the media attention and so on, that brings out the truth. But on the other hand, political uh, attention is also necessary. So I don't mind if some countries try a more uh, conciliatory way of trying to find a solution, help Hong Kong, but some countries may find a more hardline way to try as well. Try everything. Uh, I'm not a <laughs> I think most people in Hong Kong think that way, and they treasure and they value the support from the international community, and that's what really matters. Well, it remains to be seen whether attitudes uh, will change over here. So far, they have been reluctant and more subdued, I would say, compared to the U.S. Um, um, Frank, let's try to see it from a different view or a different aspect of the whole thing. Um, Charles also talked about the, re uh, the elections and how those were um, a big victory for pro-democracy um, supporters. Um, we also saw with surprise um, how the Chinese side and the Hong Kong side reacted towards the reactions because at the beginning they didn't react at all. Um, they didn't even publicly declare what the results were um, and Carrie Lam just said something like, okay, we respect it, we will think about it. Um, isn't this reaction very unusual? Um, before I get to that point, I want to uh, amplify a little bit what uh, Charles has just said. Um, about uh, the American um, bill that has now become a law and its impact. Um, I agree with you that it does force um, the Chinese government to do something and it gives more ammunition for the movement in Hong Kong. Uh, so in that sense, it is a good thing and I, I fully agree with you there because you can't talk to the Chinese government if you don't force their hand. They are basically not interested to talk to anybody 
except for themselves. However, it also does another thing, and that it takes Hong Kong away from Hong Kong. Um, no longer, if this continues, right, then the issue of Hong Kong simply becomes just one aspect, one piece on a chessboard of Washington and Beijing engaging each other, having a conflict with each other. And in a sense, Hong Kong itself doesn't matter to that. It's something that can be sacrificed if a greater good comes along. Um, so that is the risk that you run, right? You are now becoming part of a superpower game, and that comes with superpower risks as well. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that uh, it isn't a good thing. I think it's overall a good thing, and we need something to get out of this stalemate that has actually been created, I think, by the elections and the lack of response from the government. But it also raises the stakes enormously, and it makes you may make you... Um, as I say, no longer a master of your own destiny, even less than you are already. So that's just one thing I'd, I'd like to say. About the Communist Party's uh, lack of response, um, I think most people that observed the fact that uh, Beijing had no idea really where this result came from and how to respond to this um, has been a bit of an eye-opener. We, Of course, the jury is still out. But it does seem, and that's also what you read uh, across the internet and the media now, that Beijing, and particularly the circle of leaders around uh, Xi Jinping, are increasingly separated from reality. They are only fed that information that suits the sycophants around them. And that's a really dangerous situation. I was just talking to Noah Barkin here, and we were saying, unfortunately, the same thing applies to Washington. <laughs> so we have two capitals of the two superpowers in which the, 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 the important, most important leader or leaders decreasingly know what's actually going on in the world. Um, and that's, I think, a recipe for disaster, not only in Hong Kong, but also elsewhere. I want to finally say another point, I, as, I, uh, as was said, I was in Hong Kong for a week uh, last week uh, at the kind invitation of the Hong Kong government. Um, so I spoke a lot to high civil servants and a few uh, politicians as well, but mostly civil servants. Um, I was impressed by two things. First of all, the lack of, or sort of the, the, the degree of professionalism of these people and their dedication to their work and to Hong Kong. And secondly, by the total lack of any strategy that they had in getting out of this situation. They have no idea. It's way beyond their pay grade, and they also know that the people whose pay grade it is have no idea either. Um, so when you, and they all wanted to talk about the demonstration, they all want to talk about the movement, but all of them said, we have no idea what to do. Uh, I can just react to this as, as, as a private citizen and, you know, express my worries and my concern and my fear. But really, we have no plan. We have no strategy. And that is the most worrying thing of all. Yeah, this is really not very encouraging, uh, considering that Hong Kong is such an important place for the economy of the region, also for China's economy, for financial flows, and uh, that leads me to like our second part here. Um, Hong Kong is an important financial center. More than 8,000 foreign companies are located on the ground. China channels capital flows in and out of the country. Um, we are, since the protests began, watch, uh, seeing that uh, the economy somehow slumps a little bit, at least if, when it comes to exports, tourist arrivals, stuff like that. Investment flows into China, however, still seem unaffected um, for the time being. Um, Alicia, you live and work in Hong Kong. Um, maybe we could, you could 
first briefly explain why the place is so attractive as a financial center and as a home base for companies doing business in the region? Uh, thanks very much That's for really the invitation. Nice. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, and uh, listen to such a passionate uh, explanation about what's happening in Hong Kong. I'm very attached to Hong Kong. Um, I have four kids living in Hong Kong, and you know, frankly, I I I I share a lot of what you said and how you know how Hong Kongers feel. Um, but I'm an economist, so I'm going to talk about you know numbers here. Uh, bear with me. So I think that the, the most important thing I'd like to say is that nobody, in my humble opinion, beyond the transparency of Hong Kong and the very many journalists hanging around that explain part of why we are still where we are. But the other reason, which is much more important, is how, 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 I, I wouldn't say important, I would say even indispensable Hong Kong is and not for the world, which it is, for the mainland. And that's the key. And every time I try to explain this, even Hong Kongers look at me like, can't possibly be true. Well, by the way, the New York Times didn't help uh, support my view because they, in, in mid-July, I was showing in the US, I think third week of July, they came up with this article that Hong Kong was irrelevant. Hong Kong's GDP used to be 16% of that of the mainland. Now it's two and a half. And I was like, I can't believe that the New York Times, frankly speaking, measures the importance of Hong Kong by GDP. I mean, even my daughter can do that. So frankly, and she doesn't like economics, so it's not very hard, but it's not relevant. Hong Kong is not important because of its GDP. Hong Kong is important for many other reasons. I'm going to be only a few because I know the interest of time. Number one, is that Hong Kong is the entry and the exit of Chinese capital. And all of that would, you know, could look unimportant if China had an open capital account. So before I go on, I have to say, of course the mainland is important for Hong Kong. I'm, I'm not going to push the point to, the, you know, to, to say that Hong Kong is more important than the mainland. That's not the, of course not true. But within that context, that Hong Kong is more and more linked to the mainland, I have to say that Hong Kong is important for the mainland. And in that regard, the most important thing, as I was saying, is entry and exit of capital. So 70% of China's upward FDI into the world, including here in Germany, goes through Hong Kong. And of course, uh, some people say it could go through Macau. Not really. You know, just ask around how it would be treated and what would be the number of inspections, you know, money laundering and you name it. So not really, okay? Uh, could it go through the mainland? Not really. And there's a number of reasons. The, a very important one, because I work in an investment bank, so I can tell you that, say, came China by inside Genta? Where was the money? Fun I mean, where, where the funding came from Hong Kong. A lot of the private funding, because they issued equity finance, Bond finance in dollar, $40 billion. So if, if I have to actually draw out of the chest of foreign reserves of, of safe, $40 billion each time, I'm telling you that's not what the mainland wants to see, rightly speaking. So Hong Kong serves as a pool of funding in dollar that, has, that, that allows the mainland to buy abroad and also allows the mainland to receive FDI into the mainland. Because 
Why would I go through Hong Kong and not directly into the mainland? First, because Hong Kong has a wonderful international commercial court that defends the rights of the investor, which you wouldn't have elsewhere. So, you know, it's so much easier to go through Hong Kong. And that, I'm not saying you can't substitute it forever, but you can't substitute it in a day. So that's a big issue. The other one is the, the sheer size of the Hansen. We just saw Alibaba, 11 billion, in the middle of the riots. I mean, because of course, although they, they, they did this, I think Monday, Tuesday, whatever, this week, they prepared it before, yeah? So it means they actually prepared in the midst of chaos in Hong Kong. Thus, if Alibaba managed to do that and actually uh, stood to its decision to do secondary listing in Hong Kong, it means there was nowhere else to go. There was nowhere else to go. Otherwise, they would have chosen a different. So, so my point here is, if you're so important, it's so much easier, in my opinion, for everybody to wait. To wait before you break or, you know, you, you kill the hen of the golden eggs, basically, which, which is what Hong Kong is. And this is not about, only about Hong Kongers. It's, it's a mixture of many things. But in itself, this is, I think, what nobody wants to see destroyed. And this is why, in economic terms, we see a recession in Hong Kong, very, very important recession. But it's retail sales, hospitality, it's not finance. Finance is still intact. So before we see that coming down, I think it'll take a while because nobody wants to see it. Nobody. This is Merrick's Experts. Max, what is your take on this? Can China do without Hong Kong? Maybe on the long term at least. Sure. Uh, well, gladly. I'm, I, in, in large parts, with everything I would agree with what was just said. Um, so uh, I think we're on the same page here. So maybe when it comes to the reflection of whether or not Hong Kong can be replaced, um, it depends on the time horizon and also how optimistic you are that China can achieve this. And I think we should detach ourselves from the current developments um, and just reflect on what China has been trying to do for the past 20 years. They have been trying to improve or reform its financial system in order to uh, create the institutions that Hong Kong already provides, and they failed. So this is, uh, this is not to say that China has not uh, developed its financial market, and Shanghai has clearly, as well as Shenzhen, have um, made tremendous uh, improvements, but they mainly serve a domestic function. And the, for the element of international finance, they are no match for Hong Kong. And this is based on the necessary institutions um, that were already mentioned. So this is, the, this is the rule of law. It's the convertibility of the currency and the lack of capital controls um, that are institutional features that are necessary for international finance. And even though China has tried to open these kind of channels directly into the Chinese financial market, so there's certain mechanisms which I would call as selective capital control opening, um, there is still this regulatory framework and the rule of law that is trusted in Hong Kong. And it has a track record that it can withstand political pressure up until now. And this is exactly why these channels are still being used via Hong Kong. And it makes it very difficult to put something on paper and put it in place, but then also establish this trust. And this is actually where I see one of the biggest threats currently to Hong Kong is in an effort to extort or to expand its political control over Hong Kong. The price that they will pay is that the independence of the judiciary, which is still in place, is really under threat. Alicia, this, um, what Max just mentioned, this 
trust factor. Um, can you see trust, a loss of trust among international business people in the place? Is that palpable already? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a number of uh, aspects, I guess, uh, which are undermining trust. Um, uh, the very first, I think, is, is of course, what happened in to Cathay Pacific. I think that was very a wake-up call. We saw one more case at BNP Paribas, a smaller case, because it was one, only one individual, but, but the idea of um, individual freedom of expression or else participation in the Junra, uh, we should call them riots because that's the official name, but whatever. Um, that, that you know the consequences of, of that the BNP was a post on Facebook on his personal capacity so I think that that is mm, difficult because think about it if you are a European company maybe you have a code of conduct whatever that might be for all of your employees everywhere so now you start you have to start thinking should I have to should I uh, reduce the rights of my employees elsewhere and so it becomes very tricky for foreign companies um They may have expats, you know, uh, who supposedly have a contract, say, in our case, back in Paris. How are you going to tell them you can't post? You know, it's very complicated. So companies don't really know what to do. And the only thing they're doing, because Hong Kong is so important, is nothing. Meaning, uh, would anybody today announce, I'm leaving? Well, first of all, where? Singapore? I mean, Singapore is small compared to Hong Kong in many, many ways for finance. Uh, well, we could talk about, you know, freedom of expression in Singapore, which I'm going to avoid, but I'm saying, you know, not that there's so many places you can go. So, so we're all frozen because nobody knows what to do and everybody's praying it won't last long. But, but that's not, you know, that's not a solution to the situation. But I, I think really foreign companies are really wait and see because they can't take an ultimate decision. And I have to say, imagine that you were to say, We're leaving Hong Kong. Would that have consequences if you are operating, you know, a greater China business from Hong Kong? So it's it's very. So I think foreign companies are captured in a way. And by the way, they don't have a say because the last thing you want to do is to have a say. Uh, therefore, especially European companies. So you know, it's like really, really difficult uh, for for business. Let alone the fact that European companies in Hong Kong mainly increasingly less into finance because the Chinese uh, banks are now 45% of bank assets. So the, so the uh, relative share of foreign banks, especially non-British, I mean, European non-British is very small. But we are more relevant into the luxury, into the, uh, you know, um, basically everything that has to do with hospitality. And that is the hardest hit sector. Mm -hmm. So it is actually quite uh, a problem for European interests in Hong Kong. Yes, that sounds like a pretty critical situation. And the Cathay Pacific case, if I may just summarize, it was um, that employees of the um, flight company had expressed themselves during the protest and then the company got pressured um, uh, and was told that they had to basically tell their employees not to show up at protests or not to express themselves anymore, which for foreign companies, of course, is pretty um, gross. Actually, gross both the actually both the CEO and COO were forced to uh, resign. Yes, so two hundred people were fired. Just mm. to 
Um, Charles, um, maybe moving away a little bit from this topic of the financial hub, um, how are, because for Hong Kongers in the city, this is maybe some of them work in the financial sector, but they also work in different economic uh, areas. Um, and how do they see this, situ this developing situation with the Pearl River Delta, Chinese cities gaining a competitive edge in several businesses? Um, how do Hong Kongers want to compete? Are they or how do they think they can compete in the future when you come to different sectors? Well, first of all, I think Hong Kongers, Hong Kong people, uh, of course, Hong Kong is a very international city. I mean, friends, people, residents like Alicia and everybody, they are all Hong Kong people. But if, you, if, if, let, if I take a step back about the, more, the native Hong Kong people, I think at the moment, most of them are not really thinking about what's my economic future. I think they are really thinking about what's Hong Kong's future overall uh, as a city, as a home, rather than thinking about the economic future. The government has been trying to force or, or suggest that this uh, uh, integration with the Greater Bay Area, the Pearl River Delta area, as a solution for Hong Kong. But to be honest, I think especially if you talk to the younger people, this is not a very attractive option for them. I'm not saying that no one goes to China to, to work and to uh, you know, find a good work and uh, to, to develop their business or their career and so on. Those who want to go, already gone. Those who didn't want to go for a lot of reasons, because I cannot use my Facebook. I have to circumvent to, to get onto the internet. I cannot do some of the things that I want to do. Of course, I might be able to get a bigger apartment, cheaper over there, but to them, this is not the most important thing that they, that they want. On the reverse, actually, uh, uh, I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not in the financial business totally. I'm more in the technology IT business. You know, I see a lot of my young people in my sector these days because everybody, everywhere in the world, there's a lack of good technology professionals. They have a choice to work in not just China, but Singapore, US, London, Japan, anywhere. So actually, uh, we are suffering a brain drain, again, in that, in that regard. So uh, this integration with China, I think, is not really a, a some, at least at, at the people's level, it's not something that I think most people are really you know, trying to follow the, the government's call as, you know, again, uh, I think we were having a discussion earlier that you know government is trying to frame the whole political situation right now as a consequence of young people not having good opportunity, very difficult to buy an apartment because it's so expensive. They want to frame it as an economic issue. It is not an economic issue. It's more about, right now it's very clear, it's about freedom. Uh, even the financial district, I mean, in the recent weeks, three or four weeks, almost every other day, there's a flash demonstration in Central. And you see these people wearing suits and ties and, and uh, obviously, like, they work in the financial district, young financial professionals. And they go down and <laughs> during lunchtime <laughs> and have this flash demonstration, yelling slogan, singing the movement anthem, uh, and so on, obstructing traffic for a couple hours, and then go back to work. So, you know, it's this kind of pervasiveness in the support 
that even those people that you would see as privileged, young professional in the financial service industry, not the kind of people who, you know, toiling in, you know, second, third tier jobs and so on, they also came out to support. So if the government doesn't go back to the basics, and just like any government, when they handle a conflict like this, what do they do? Dialogue, make real changes, fully investigate uh, those people who are accused of wrongdoings. If they want to bypass these kind of things, there's no other, I just don't know where the, the other alternatives would be. Frank, during your time in Hong Kong, you talked to many officials. What was their vision for the future of the city? If we set aside the uh, quite difficult situation at the time now, what is their economic vision? Um, well, I want to support basically what you already said. I talked to several people working uh, also in terms of economic planning and technology planning, and one of the things that was very clear to me is that um, uh, Hong Kong is not a, a high-tech hub. It is, not, of course, not a, uh, an industrial hub. It's not even a trade hub anymore. Its added value is, as we've said here, is business services, financial services, insurance, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think from my conversations, um, it's very clear that civil servants doubt the long-term sustainability, simply on economic grounds, of that kind of growth model and that kind of prosperity model. So there's a real desire or uh, ur urgency within the government to try to somewhat diversify the economy and look again at high-tech development um, growth sectors there so that Hong Kong's future can be sustained in the longer term. Um, but I also heard several people say, well, that's what we try, but, uh, but we're not sure that it's actually going to work. Uh, because when you look just across the border in Shenzhen, they already are doing that at, on a massive scale, and it's actually quite unclear if we can compete with that. Um, and you only have to fly over the Hong Kong Shenzhen border, which I did, which was fun, um, to see the reality of that. You know, Shenzhen is two or three times as large and as high as Hong Kong now. So you have the Eastern Pearl or Western capitalism on one side, and the Eastern Pearl of capitalist socialism on the other side, and one is obviously already out-competing the other. Now, there's a lot of um, uncertainty and fear among civil servants as well uh, about, uh, about this. I, I, I just remember, I want to give you one more example about uh, not the financial services industry, but my, tech, my industry, the technology industry. Um, we may not be a technology hub to create a company like Tencent or Alibaba, no. Uh, but, in fact, we are a very important communications hub for the region. Fiber optics and uh, undersea cable coming into Hong Kong and distributing into all the other areas because we have freedom of information, no censorship, and so on. i tell you one example. Last year, last summer, I went to the United States and talked to a major, one of the largest U.S. tech companies in Hong Kong, considering to build their second data center in Asia. They were putting Hong Kong at the top of the list. November, they were supposed to come to Hong Kong. We arranged a meeting for them to meet with senior government official, potentially even the most senior official, okay? But a week or two before they were about to come out, they canceled. What happened? Uh, Financial Times, uh, Victor Mallet. If you remember, 
he was he because he hosted a luncheon in the Foreign Correspondence Club. He was the chairman of, of vice chairman or chairman of the Foreign FCC at the time, and he hosted a luncheon with a so-called pro Hong Kong independence political party leader. And because of that, he got his visa revoked or not renewed. Right after that, you think it's unrelated to business? It is. That particular largest, one of the largest US-based technology company that I cannot name, pulled out of Hong Kong. Not pulled out of Hong Kong, but they stopped the investment plan for that big data center, which could mean billions of dollars of investment, long-term investment in Hong Kong. So, you know, it happens. And I talked to the government. What did they do? They denied. They said, no, no, no. Uh, the uh, Victor Mallet case was an individual case, uh, not because of what he did and so on, so on. Uh, can you explain? No, you cannot explain individual cases, so sorry. Uh, and they keep on this self-denial. But in reality, uh, I don't know about business leaving Hong Kong yet, but some of them are not coming, unfortunately, at least in my business. Let's do a quick round, um, look into the crystal ball. Where do you see Hong Kong in six months? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, nothing of either? Max, maybe you would like to kick it off. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I remember being asked this question in August also. I think, um, uh, I mean, I think we need to really understand how volatile the situation is. And, um, even small measures can can escalate even further. So I would I would consider Hong Kong extremely vulnerable. Um, if we look at six months ahead, I I don't think there will be a a radical solution which would be necessary. So in form of major concessions or a major clampdown uh, by by Beijing, I think um, the next six months will still well we will see a continuation of the situation and but in this process a, a gradual erosion of fundamental institutions within hong kong alicia may i pass it on to you uh, i'm going to focus a bit because it's, i don't really know what's going to happen so it wouldn't be very accurate <laughs> to say the least so i'm going to focus on the economy what's going to happen to the uh, hong kong if if anybody is operating there you may be interested well i think basically investment is um, stalled nobody's investing in hong kong because nobody knows what's going to happen um there's going to be a lot of um kind of young talent if I may say, from high schoolers to university students who are not going to show up for next term. And that's a huge loss for them. Surely, universities are closed. Um, I, I can only now teach online, you know, literally. I can't go to the campus. I'm not allowed to enter the campus. This is Lingnan University. Uh, so, you know, because it's... Because of security reasons, or why? Well, this is a government decision, apparently. I mean, you may know better, at least from Lingnan, that's what I've been told, because I've asked why I can't enter the, the, the campus. So, anyway, whatever. I'm saying, many students will not come back in, in January. So that... Hong Kong has seven wonderful universities. By the way, I think one of the things on the Greater Bay Area that makes... Hong Kong special are these universities. And, and you know, the talent and the, the linkages with the U.S. universities, big question mark, depending on whether the Hong Kong Policy Act is lifted, 
because the visa policy, as you know, the very free visa policy with the U.S. compared to the mainland may disappear as a consequence with many implications for Hong Kong students, Hong Kong-based students um, and, you know, uh, basically permanent residents and let alone um, Hong Kong passport holders. So basically, I think this is very important to realize that even if nothing happens, even if there's no down, even if already by the level of uncertainty, the Hong Kong economy will suffer and will lose talent, even if nothing else happens, as long as there's no certainty as to the direction that Hong Kong will take. So in, in other words, I frankly think that, I mean, you may be upset about what I'm going to say, but even if it were as simple as Hong Kong is part of China, uh, frankly, I mean, it's undeniable. So, But up to 2047, this is how it's going to be. That, to me, would already be a solution because it basically, you, you can, you know, kind of forecast what's going to happen. So even reinstating the obvious, whatever that obvious might be, and I know that, you know, people have different views, but the point is, whatever that is, would already be a great thing because now nobody knows what's going to happen. Charles, maybe you would like to seize the opportunity. I, I, I actually couldn't put it any better than they can. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, and I, I tend not to try to be very optimistic. I am cautiously pessimistic about what... German. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, because really, uh, I, I think uh, one thing that I haven't said up to now is that our government seems to be totally, uh, not only losing touch, but actually their hands are totally tied. The decisions are definitely not made in Hong Kong. You talk about the civil servants, I think many of them are re very reasonable, they know what's going on. One thing that they haven't said, maybe they couldn't say it, or they didn't want to say it, is that they all know that the decisions are not made in Hong Kong. So that's the problem. Frank, optimistic? No. Now, optimism is uh, out of fashion, right? <laughs> no, I think I'm, I'm just quite curious to see, quite honestly, what will happen with uh, the movement in the next few weeks, really. Uh, I don't want to look beyond that, quite honestly. I think uh, the movement and the government both have reached a point now that uh, continue on the way they did doesn't pay off. There's no... Where the, the scenario has been fully played out, as it were. Um, so something has to happen in order to, for further changes to, to, to take place. And the question is then who blinks first? Um, and I would think that the government is actually, it is their turn. Uh, the elections, of course, now force them, I think, to, to do something. And I hope there's some realization in Beijing also now dawning that they have to do something if, only if it is very, very limited. Um, and that may trigger you know, a, a positive cycle if, if everything goes well. For the demonstrators or the movement or whatever you want to call them, I would suggest use your victory in the district uh, council elections to its maximum effect. So use these district, district council and your control of them to put pressure on the government from the bottom up. You know, pass laws or pass ordinances or, or do things that make life difficult for the government. Uh, this is completely legal, uh, and yet that's going to be very, very effective. So you have been given a very important instrument, and I think, you know, try to use this. Okay, a call for a strategic approach. Um, thank you, um, my fellow panelists. 
And thanks to you in the audience, this was Merrick's lunch talk. I hope you come back next time. We have a great topic waiting for you. On Hong Kong, of course, we will continue to work on the topic. You have the policy brief we published in September on your chairs, and there will be more studies upcoming, so stay tuned to our website. Thank you for being here. Bye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.